America, a democracy. China, not a democracy. America, a culture that celebrates individualism. China, a country that prizes what we might euphemistically call teamwork. America, a country where over 300,000 Chinese students are now studying. What must that be like? As you're about to hear, the culture shock can be tremendous, but not as tremendous perhaps as the consequences for two education systems that have very little in common. My name's Matthew Sweet, and this is the podcast from 1843, the new sister magazine of The Economist, where you can hear our contributors in conversation. And joining me on a line from Shanghai is Brooke Lama, who's been hanging out with Chinese students for the April-May issue of the magazine. Brooke, let's first settle something. The numbers are increasing. Why are these students coming? There are many reasons why the, why the numbers have increased so dramatically over the past decade. It's gone up 500% in just 10 years. And it used to be that these were predominantly graduate students uh, coming to the United States. Now, more and more undergraduates. The motivations are, are somewhat hard to generalize. For some, it's a way of showing status or prestige, a, a kind of a keeping up with the Wongs. Uh, many families in China see the U.S. degree, especially from a top school, as, as, as another luxury brand purchase. But uh, I would say there's a larger motivation, which is also escaping the Chinese system, based on the single national university entrance exam called the Gaokao. And there is a common denominator among many of the students to, to get out of this rather rigid system and into the United States system. Not always because they're the best students, but also because they're not faring so well in the Chinese system and they need to have another option. But the two students that I followed in this piece uh, were actually doing quite well in the Chinese system and they were taking a big risk to go to the United States. I want to home in on some of those cases that you've been looking at in a moment. But I am curious about the, this mixture of motivations, a kind of status symbol, like, like having a, a, a posh bottle of scotch of some kind, but also some kind of critique of the, the Chinese education system, some admission that there's something inadequate about it. There's a push within the Chinese government now to eradicate foreign ideas from Chinese universities. And at the same time, you have so many students especially the children of the elite, pushing to go abroad. And there does seem among the students that I've spoken to to be a sense that they, there's something more out there than just cramming for an exam all during your high school years. And there's some desire to have a more liberal system in which they can freely exchange ideas. But that's not the only, only uh, motivation. Sometimes the motivation comes from the families who are looking at longer-term prospects. They're looking for a, a way to store their capital abroad or to invest abroad or even eventually to immigrate. And this all goes against this kind of idea that, that there are foreign ideas that people should be scared about within China. Is there any traffic in the other direction? There are tens of thousands of, of American students that are here but there's certainly nowhere near the flood of students that has arrived in the United States. Is it a flood, though, I wonder? Because one of the things I was most struck by in your piece was the smallness of the numbers when we're talking about how many Chinese students are being admitted to Ivy League universities in the States. That's true. It's, it's, it's absolutely true that the vast majority of Chinese students end up in larger state universities, often in the Midwest or in California, where there can be three or four, even 5,000 Chinese students in a single university. The Ivy League, however, the schools there can be extraordinarily selective 
And in some of these schools, such as Harvard, Yale, or Princeton, you're only talking about a dozen or, or more students that are, are accepted every year, which is why at the very top, with the top students in China, the competition is just intense. And it's intense, I suppose, because those numbers are so small, I suppose, because as you point out, there's something about the admission system that is very much against the grain of Chinese culture or the culture of the education system at the very least. Yes. The problem that the Chinese students face when they start to turn towards the United States as an option for their higher education is that they're making this leap, as you noted, from a system that really is built to suppress some of the very qualities that the American admissions officers are looking for, individuality, creativity, resilience. And they're also asking for extracurricular activities or unique life experiences that set them apart from their peers. And yet, for many Chinese students, they don't really know what makes them different from everyone around them, and they don't have many life experiences that would show that. So they faced the challenge at that moment of trying to create, in some ways, or manufacture a personality that will appeal to these top schools. And how painful is it to travel between these cultures? Well, it depends. I mean, many, many Chinese students have been preparing for this since they were very young. So some of them have been taken to the United States at age four or five to stand on the steps of Harvard University and say, this is where we want to aim. They've been enrolled in international schools or the international wings of local public schools, have learned English from the time they were young. So for some of, some of the students that are coming from wealthy families that know they're aiming abroad, this transition happens over several years. For some other students who decide only in high school to make this jump, it can be extraordinarily disruptive and very disorienting. You spoke to a young woman called Monica, whose, uh, whose story really exemplifies, I think, the, the, the potential agony of this, uh, of this border crossing. Yes, Monica was an interesting student. She was one of the top students in her middle school in Beijing. She grew up as uh, the daughter of a colonel in the People's Liberation Army in a compound in northwest Beijing, where really life is extraordinarily regimented and the system demands an absolute amount of conformity and loyalty. And so she was coming from a, a place which was really exemplified the, the purest form of the system. And uh, she decided uh, that she wanted to make the leap and had to persuade, first of all, her parents that this was uh, something that she should do. And at that moment, she shifted into an international wing in a local public school. And then from that moment on, tried to figure out how it was that she could differentiate herself from her peers. And what's the state's attitude to students like Monica? The state is quite ambivalent about this whole idea of, of an exodus to seeking Western education. I mean, the, the, the irony is, as I said before, that there's uh, the Chinese government at this point is trying to eradicate foreign ideas from its institutes of higher education, with the exception of Karl Marx, of course. There's a, a report that I quote in the story where there's an organization here that does an annual survey of the elite. And of the elite, about 80% are actually planning to send their children abroad. And these are the elite who are either government officials who have benefited from the government policies over the past two decades. Even the president, Xi Jinping, his daughter attended Harvard uh, under assumed name. There's an, a desire to have Western education among the elite, and yet at the same time, there's a bit of, of ambivalence because they don't want their entire creme de la creme to simply head off to the United States and be too overly influenced by American culture. So there's definitely an ambivalence within the government towards this exodus to the United States.
And what's their attitude to the to the economy that has built up around the process of getting these students to America? I mean, as you describe it, it's pretty extraordinary. You can buy these uh, books called things like "Our Dumb Little Boy Goes to Cambridge." There are all of these people who'll help you through the process, who'll cram you with all this stuff. It sounds pretty corrupt, too. The the bulk of the the economy around this is in the United States. The United States, in a, in essence, is exporting education, and every year. Simply based on the on the Chinese students that are coming, they receive an, an additional nine point eight billion dollars into the United States economy. So that's the bulk of the econ- economic gain here. However, it has spawned, as you say, an industry in China, which is both the test prep industry as well as the admissions consulting industry. Now, w- if you start to talk about uh, you know any ideas about fraud, now that's I would have to handle that separately because the entire process. Every step of the way is fraught with potential cheating and fraud. Some of it is unavoidable. The actual agencies themselves are sometimes party to this, but oftentimes they are providing a service where students and families are coming from a, a, a point of absolute ignorance about what colleges they can shoot for or what the process will be like. So they absolutely do need some handholding. The question is how that's done, and in some cases, it's done where there will be. Agencies that offer full service. We will manufacture everything from your transcript to your teacher recommendations to your personal essays that are supposed to describe how you are thinking as an individual for your application process. And that, of course, is is a step way too far for American admissions programs. But not everyone does that, and there's a huge need for this kind of information that the agencies can provide. But does this mean that American institutions treat applications from Chinese students with more skepticism than they might、uh, from students from elsewhere? Definitely, I think there's a large degree of skepticism about applications coming from China. There was a, a consulting firm that estimated that about eighty percent of all personal essays coming from China were not written by the applicants themselves. There are some some doubts about test scores, especially in the in the English test, the TOEFL. So this is why the, there's also a secondary industry that has developed to verify Chinese applicants, especially among the the top schools. They will want to have third party video interviews and、uh, other kinds of references that will verify that their applicants are actually who they say they are. It's a whole parallel world, this, isn't it? It's like the exchange of、uh, of pieces of paper that、uh, seem to have very little connection with the the materiality of the situation. In some cases, this kind of fraud is unavoidable simply because of the differences in the systems. In China, it's not simply that the students have to prepare for a whole different battery of tests—the SAT or the ACT or the TOEFL. But they also have to prepare a raft of documents that are almost meaningless within the Chinese context. The t- transcripts, teacher recommendations, and, and personal essays are not needed in China when you are based on the Gaokao system, this national exam which has a single number which determines where you go to college. So these things are all foreign to a, a Chinese student coming into this. And on top of that, they have to create some idea of. Of who they are, some identity that would show that they are different, and even in that case, there's not necessarily. It's it's sometimes hard to believe some of the stories that will come up in Chinese applications. You can't really do both tracks at once. They're so different. In China, you're studying 16, 18 hours a day for the Gaokao. These people that are in the public schools that want to apply for American universities, 
really must leave school in order to have the time and the energy to focus on their applications. It's very difficult to do both. And in order to get your transcript, which of course re reflects classes that you weren't even attending, you need to have teachers and administrators agree to fill in marks for your classes, and then you have to buy those transcripts. You have to pay a fee, which is actually a bribe, to get your transcripts back in order to send along to the university of your choice. So that is an, a structural fraud that is based, you know, based on, the, on the absolute differences of these two systems. This process seems to have so many bizarre and abstracted qualities about it. The, the construction of these identities that you've described that these students don't really have but must uh, impress upon their interviewers um, in American institutions. What do you think that implies for the kind of anxieties that the state, the Chinese state, might have about this generation who are going out to study there? Are they going to come back to China you know, infused with American liberal values or or are they not? Now that we have a critical mass that's going to the United States, and in many universities, you have a, a large quantity of Chinese students that are living together, actually, in small communities, little Chinatowns within their universities. I actually think the risk for the Chinese state of having these students become fully Americanized is actually lower than it used to be. When you're in a smaller community in the United States and you might feel slightly embattled because in some ways in some of these universities that Chinese students are, are discriminated against and have, have not had the best experiences with their fellow classmates, they may react in a way that is protective of China. So I, I wouldn't argue that this, this flood is a flood of, of dissent in any sense. But there is a fear, and I noticed it even within the families of, of parents who are sending their children off to universities overseas and are worried about the children becoming too Americanized and are very relieved that they might have a Chinese community to land in. There's a tension between the desire for Western education and a fear of being Westernized. Are then the institutions, the American institutions themselves, expressing ideas about the opposite then? Could the, the presence of a block of Chinese students who have come you know, with the values of the Chinese state, could they be making American universities less liberal places to be? I, I don't think the overall philosophical challenge is one that universities worry about too much. These universities are looking for tuition-paying students from coming in from abroad, who pay full tuition, who provide a huge boost to their university budgets. That's the, the bottom line. They're looking at budgetary concerns. They haven't done as good a job integrating these populations into their, in, into their universities. But what it does do, and what it has shown on some universities, is that Chinese students don't tend to participate as much in classes, in, in university activities. There has been some backlash on certain university campuses that this kind of mercenary search for Chinese students has led to a less critical and open intellectual environment. It's not philosophical, but it's more that they're not as participatory. Are they interested in integrating these students into the more fully into the bodies of the university, though, or are they happy to keep them as, uh, as cash cows housed slightly separately from everybody else, as you seem to be describing it? I think it totally depends on which university you're talking about. I think many universities have no qualms about having as many Chinese students come in as they can. But I think many universities are also starting to realize you can't just bring a large number of students in from one country and not 
try to do more programs to, to integrate them. But I don't think that's universal. I think many universities, their main focus is on making sure that their budgets are balanced. Thanks very much, Brooke. And if you want to read Brooke's piece on Chinese students, then you'll find it in the April-May issue of 1843 magazine, in print on our app or online at 1843magazine.com. On the next podcast in the series, check into the Hotel Antarctica. Hotel Antarctica.